We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. What if you've reached a place where it seems impossible to take a step forward, let alone thrive? What if there are dark places full of monsters where you fear to tread? What if something happened in the past so horrible that you can't look at it over your shoulder and it's still casting a shadow today? If you're nodding along, perhaps you need to slay your dragons with compassion. That's the title of a new book from my witness today, Malcolm Stern. Malcolm is a psychotherapist who's worked with groups and individuals for nearly 30 years. He's also co-founder and co-director of Alternatives at St. James's Church in London where I've given many talks. It is the most fabulous title for your book, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, 10 Ways to Thrive Even When It Feels Impossible. How did the title come to you? Probably about 20 or more years ago, I heard a song from a band called Gentlemen Without Weapons called Transmission. And there was a chorus in there that said, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And I started using that in my groups and said, you know, so people would be aggressively attacking each other or they would be not covering the real issue that needed to be raised. And I came up with the idea of using that phrase. I thought it was a Buddhist phrase. It doesn't appear to be. But I came up with the idea of using that phrase to advise my group participants how to say what needs to be said, say it truthfully and honestly, but also find compassion. And then the idea of slaying the dragons felt a very sort of, you know, mythical archetypal image as well. So let's start looking at dragons. What dragons have you need to slain with compassion? Oh God, there's many. (laughs) But but I guess that the, the inspiration for this book was the dragon I needed to slay around my daughter's suicide. And coming to terms with something that is so abhorrent that you can't really get a a grasp on it for a long time, and then having to find how to manage your state, how to manage your relationships, I'm not saying your, how to manage my relationships, how to manage my state, felt a, 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 a task that I needed to take on, that I that was being given to me to go, right, you have to get underneath this, allow the pain to suffuse you, and then find out what's needed in order to be able to go forwards and to make some sense of it, but also to honour the memory of my beautiful daughter, Melissa. I'm obviously very sad to hear about your daughter's uh, suicide. Uh, Give us a a picture of her as a person. Oh, God, she was the most beautiful, vibrant, effervescent young woman. She was 33 years old when she took her life. And she'd been married the year before to a lovely man called Ian and, and was very happy. But 10 years previously, she'd had a, a, a serious mental breakdown. And she rang me from her and, and said to me, Dad, I'm in, a, I'm in a lunatic asylum. I said, very funny, Melissa. And she passed the phone to a nurse. And actually, she was in intensive care psychiatric. She'd flipped out and, 
and run through the streets naked, abandon all her possessions. And she said afterwards, it was almost one of the most freeing moments she'd ever had. Ten years went by and there was no sign of any return of this. She got married. She seemed to be incredibly happy. She was a, she wore bright colours. She wore beautiful lipsticks. And she was, she was full of life. People loved her. And I started to sense that she was getting very sort of over the top manic again. And for a while it was enjoyable. There was a lot of energy and buzz about it. And then she went where the other side of mania often goes into a really deep, dark depression. And in that place, she was apparently in hell for about six or seven weeks before she ended up stepping off a bridge. And my picture of her is of, of this delightful, magnificent young woman who then lost all her colour and became very pale and sad. And, and it's, you know, the extremes set into place. And what you say is how, in the book, how she reaches out to you but you were never able to find your own wisdom. You were blocked in some way by what I think we would call an unresolved wound. I mean, that must be incredibly painful that here you are, a professional in this field, and you can't help your own daughter because you are wounded too. I mean, try and help us understand this. Yes, it's a very good, it's a good call, actually, Andrew. The bottom line in this is I was 18 years old, living at home with my parents and my, with my 17-year-old sister, who went crazy one day. And, and to this day, she's now 71 and has never recovered. She's in a care home now. So I observed my sister being really wildly crazy. And I was terrified. And I didn't know how to deal with her. I didn't know how to speak to her. I didn't know how to help her. And I stood by as this sort of like dumbstruck bystander. And so I had a real thing around mental illness. And when I was starting to work with, with individuals as a psychotherapist, I was sort of proud that I was working with the neurotic well rather than, than people who are, who are actually desperately in need of something. And there was an enormous education that took place for me. But it took Melissa's death to actually really instruct me that actually mental illness is a very important part of what goes on in our lives. And to, to just go for the people who've got most of their act together and to help inspire them felt like I was really skimming the surface. So this has taken me miles deeper now. And I, I present regularly at a conference called um, Compassionate Mental Health, which takes place in Wales. And it's a place where both psychiatrists and people in the system are all part of things. I, I create workshops for people who are suffering from delusion, who are suffering from depression, who are suffering from all sorts of mental diseases. And I find that area has opened up to me in an extraordinary manner. And it's now become a, it's, it's a weird thing to say a joy to work in that way, but it's, it's, it's in, it, you'll know exactly what that means from your own work, Andrew, but it's, it, it's become inspiring to dare to go into the territory which I avoided all my life from my 18th birthday until Melissa died when I was in my 60s. And this is why I think the image of the dragons is so incredibly powerful, because we can immediately see the dark cave that is at the bottom of the mountain, and actually getting down to it is incredibly difficult. The actual journey down to the, to the mouth of the cave is full of danger. And then then to actually walk into that cage 
or I've called it a cage, but you know, it could just equally be a cave where the things that you fear the most is there. And I can see a a really nasty fire-breathing dragon that is sort of coming for us. And I think it's only that kind of huge image that can really capture how terrible our dragons are and how how much we fear them. I think that's beautifully put. And I do have an incredible fear around confronting certain issues, one of which was certainly mental illness, another of which is my Jewish past, which is around my intergenerational trauma. And so I've been terrified of Nazis or wherever Nazism might come to represent in my life. I mean, it is extraordinary how much we inherit this material. I was once working with a Jewish client who still felt that she had to have all her possessions sort of close enough to sew into her clothes to be able to escape because generations of her family beforehand had had to escape at short notice from different places. Despite the fact she lived in sort of comfortable suburban London, she was still effectively having all her jewels sewn into her clothes, psychologically. Uh, I totally understand that. And, and I'm often waiting for you know, life's going along perfectly comfortably and I'm waiting for the landmine I'm going to step on that's going to blow me to smithereens and smash my world to pieces. So slaying your dragons, even with compassion, is about conflict ultimately, really, isn't it? And your relationship with conflict is rather complex because you have a a mother or you had a mother who was very keen on saving people's feelings with white lies. Um, How has that affected you? Ah, the white lie. God, when I think about that, it's like, it almost feels like such a dirty word, white lie now for me. My mother always avoided conflicts. She would distract us if we fell over or hurt ourselves. She would always try to do the right thing so that we wouldn't be hurt and affected. But actually what happened is that she was, she taught me not to speak honestly about difficult issues, but to try and find a way of saving people's feelings. And as a therapist, that was pretty rubbish because I ended up being a nice therapist originally, but not much of a therapist. And actually the truth is that we have to go in there and sometimes challenge And uh, William Blake said that that true challenge, compassionately given, is the mark of real friendship. And and I think there is a a thing about challenging that that I never really learned. And I'm having to find the skills now to to say no, to use my sword, to use a place of, of real steel to say, no, that's not accurate. And I love that Blake quote. Can we have it again, please? I don't know if it's totally accurate, but it's close enough. He says something along the lines of the challenge compassionately given is the mark of true friendship. So let's look at the idea of the sword, because a symbolic sword is quite a good thing we're going to need. If we're going into that cave with that nasty dragon, I think we need a sword, and in this case, a symbolic sword. How, how did you discover your symbolic sword? Well, that was amazing. I was, I was doing a workshop with a, um, a German spiritual teacher called Thomas Hubel. And there were 150 people in the workshop and he was working with people in the center of the circle, as I do as well. And I'm sure you probably do when you're running groups. And so I went into the um, center of the circle and, and I was looking at myself as a, as a therapist. 
And he said, well, you seem like you have lots of compassion, but I'm wondering where your balls are. And uh, that was quite a bit sort of, uh, uh, okay. Uh, so I hear that. A little bit challenging. And very challenging, but in a, in a really good way as well, because what I felt like I had to do was to, to go, you're right, that resonates. I do feel like the, the difficult place for me to go is the place where I'm saying no, where I'm giving a really firm sort of boundary to people and to, and also to myself to find a place where I can say no to myself. And he he used the image of the sword with me, of finding my sword and saying, this will add to your practice. And extraordinarily, it did. And I very often actually picture a sword when I'm working with a client in the middle of a circle. I can see the sword cutting through the areas of obfuscation and of bullshit that they will often use to avoid going to the depths of where the issue is. And the sword's needed to get down below the level where you're able to. And of course, the compassion is needed because if we do that without, with violence, we can actually cause severe trauma in clients as well. So it's very important to have the balance of compassion and power. I see it like a big sword, like Excalibur or something like that. So it's going to be a powerful sword, but I think a sharp sword so that yes. it can cut through in a really beautiful way. So no, there are two- I just thought, as you said, that of a kind sword as well. And that's a sort of feels like an oxymoron, but it, it isn't. Mm, a kind sword. So here we are. We've, we've got our sword. We're at the the mouth of the cave, you say there are two principles for slaying dragons. And the first one is always endeavour to speak what is true for you. And again, that's a direct result of, of reaction to my mother, who always endeavoured not to speak what was true for her. And she was lovely. I'm, I'm not saying my mother was a terrible person. She just had that wound where she wouldn't speak her truth. So, so for me, there's a real practice in being honest, in saying, well, this is my truth. And that doesn't mean occasionally I won't lie, I'm not George Washington. But actually the reality is that I now speak my truth much more as a result of this process I've, I've gone through and feel very comfortable often speaking truth. And of course, there's a, then the second principle comes into play, which is um, never hurt another more than is necessary. That's quite an interesting feature. And I, and I, I picked that up from John Fowles' book, The Magus, where it was one of the secrets that this wise woman gives to the, the pilgrim on his travels, that actually we should never hurt another more than is necessary. And I adapted that in because the reality is that if we are spiteful in our communication, we wound and we cause bruises. But if we're honest, but we're also aware of the other and aware of what they can handle, we then take responsibility for part of the dialogue where we're saying what's true for us, but we are also not deliberately causing pain for pain's sake. And I think that sometimes we can cause more hurt than is intended because we speak our truth and we repeat it and we repeat it over and over again, partly because we sort of somehow don't believe our truth is allowed to be heard, so we say it several times, and then that becomes something that is intensely painful for the other person. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's also the, the, the feeling that if we say something 10 times or 20 times, they'll finally get it, whereas actually we may be knocking on the wrong door. And it may be that we need to have our truth be more intelligent, that our truth is also taking on what the other is able to hear. So we have to become more skillful in our communication. So 
how do you know when a dragon needs to be slain? When it's causing distress would be the first thing I would look at. For me, if I find myself pussyfooting around something, I know a dragon has to be slain. I'll give you a little example. A a friend of mine did something to me that, that really upset me. And I tried to go, that it doesn't really matter. But what I found was that I was avoiding connecting with her and I didn't want very much to do with her. And I started to find myself thinking badly about her. And I realized here's a dragon that needs to be slain. I actually need to say I was hurt. Dare to say that. And she's perfectly capable of hearing that as well. She's also a therapist. And actually in speaking to her, we then uncovered some of the wound that was there. And I was left without the bad feeling that had been there for for quite a while. So my dragon had to be slain in that particular instance. So we've got our swords. We've got the basic principles for slaying dragons. And you also give us six steps to stand firm in the face of conflict. So let's go through those six steps because I think they're really beautiful. The first one is find the right place and time. I think, funnily enough, I was running a group last night and and, and, um, someone was looking at a place where there was conflict with her and her parents. And I said, where would you like to have the dialogue? You're only going to practice it here in the group. You're going to do a psychodrama around it. But where would you like it to be? Do you want it to be on their territory because they need extra support, on your territory because you'll feel safer there, or on neutral territory? And, and when are you at your best? Is this going to be in the morning or in the evening? I know for me, if I want to have a really good dialogue with someone, it'll be in the morning because I'm a morning person. So if we tip the dice in favour of getting a favourable outcome, not of making it too good for us, but of making sure that there's the good of the whole is embraced, and then we sort of find the right place to have the dialogue. You don't want to be having a conversation with someone when they're distracted and and, and doing a million different things and just trying to slip it in. If it's an important dialogue, it needs to be spacious. And the worst time to bring it up is in the middle of an argument, which unfortunately is often where we bring it up because we're angry and suddenly we think, well, this is another example of X and you try and bring it up when the two of you are actually in a dispute it's not going to go well. It doesn't work well. And actually, I was inspired by reading the um, the Vietnamese Buddhist master, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he gives this beautiful little example. He said that a man is in conflict with his wife and he's really upset and wants to raise something. And he says to her, my darling, I felt really upset when you said this. Could we meet on Friday at seven o'clock and talk about it? And that felt like such a brilliant little move of actually recognising that you've got the hurt but also of recognising that you're not going to resolve it in that moment, but that you're not just letting it pass. And I would give one piece of advice to add to that is when the time comes, whatever's happening, you must have the conversation. Because if you say, oh, let's talk about this later and later never comes, it just puts so much pressure into that moment. And you can't stop the forthcoming catastrophe. But if you actually deliver, even if it's an uncomfortable time or something else is happening, the later, that will be a huge breakthrough for you. But unfortunately, lots of people get out of the conflict, but they never do the follow-up. So the second way to stand firm in the face of conflict is to seek wise counselling. Tell me about that. 
One of the big things I'm exploring at the moment is the concept of Sangha, which is of spiritual community. Now, that was applicable to Buddhists who would, who would take comfort in being with, with fellow monks. But I think in our times that we're living in right now, there is an enormous need to, to hang out with people who can speak their truth to you and who will be your true friends by challenging you where necessary as well in a compassionate way. So for, for me, when we're really struggling with something and we're knocking on this door that won't open, it's a wise move to step away from that and to move towards someone who can say, look, I'm struggling with this. Can you give me a perspective? And I have a number of friendships like that where I will get a perspective and it, it will open my mind to other possibilities, which perhaps I would never have been able to find on my own. And how do you think things would have been different for your daughter if she'd had a sangha that she could have gone to? Oh, that's, a, that's a very moving question, actually, Andrew. And uh, I wish I'd been part of a sangha and I'd, I wish I'd had the wisdom to, to be the wise friend for her in that place. And I tried, but I was frightened, is the truth. And so I wasn't a good sangha for her. And I think it would have been great if she'd had that sangha. And somehow she... I think with my daughter, in my daughter's case, she did have some really good friends. She could have turned to them if she'd had the capacity to do so. But when she hit the depression, and this is very often what happens to people who are very depressed, is that they don't feel able to reach out from that place. And I think it's a really big sort of, it's almost like a, a big muscle stretch to reach out at that moment. And I think if she'd been able to reach out, she probably had the capacity for Sangha around her. But I think there's also a problem with our culture in general. We live in a culture that says we have to solve all these things on our own, that to have a culture that says we need to have these places, and friends might be it, but, you know, a physical place we can go, that might be a therapist, it might be a meditation group, somewhere that um, you're regularly going, and that it's not such a great stretch because that effectively people ask you in a meditation group, how are you sometimes? And you can, it can sort of spill out. And that's different from actually having to have enough courage to contact a friend. And then when you actually meet them, say it. So I think we need to find ourselves something more than just good friends, some kind of supportive community. I don't know what you think about that. I think that's beautifully put, actually, Andrew. I think it's exactly right. And the, the, the trouble is we often feel the need when we are struggling to find the support, but we don't have the resources built. And I think if we build our resources before we reach the place where we're in need, we've then built a community that supports both ourselves and others. And it's much easier to make that step towards saying, please support me. Can you give me something? So step three is pre-brief and debrief important interactions. And I often do this with, with clients. That I, will, I will say, well, okay, before we, I had a client I was working with recently who was, who was going to a tribunal and he was being challenged about his behaviour towards uh, one, of, one of his employees. And I said to him, before you have that meeting, call me. Let's have a 15-minute call so you're actually preparing yourself before you go in. And then when you're done, then call me again so we can actually sort of like then take a look at what happened. And that way we feel we're supported in going into difficult situations where there's some fear around often. The next one is perhaps 
too obvious, but is really important, and that is breathe. Tell me about that. (laughs) Well, there's a line I use sometimes in groups, which is your breath is your friend. And the first thing that goes when we feel under attack, when we feel put into a difficult situation, is that our breath starts to to shorten. So if we're, we're panicked, we're anxious about something, instead of deepening our breathing to find the place inside us, which can be spacious, we shorten our breathing because we are panicked and we are avoiding the difficulty. We're trying to escape from the difficulty rather than confronting the difficulty. So consciously taking yourself into a deeper breath is the first step towards being able to take control of yourself in a situation where you feel like you may lose control. And in fact, I think we're going to double that down and we're going to say, take two deep breaths or maybe even three. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Because it it sort of seems like forever to you, but on the outside, it will just be a, a little silence like that. Yeah, exactly. Number five in our ways to stand firm in the face of conflict is listen. Again, this is a a practice that I, I see life as a series of practices. And I see that the practice of truly listening to another is a practice where we create a safe environment where truth can be spoken. So when I'm running a group, often if I'm working with someone in the center of the group, I will turn to the other group participants and say, don't switch off now. Can you bring your full presence to this situation? So we provide a listening ear that allows for depth to take place. And it's such a simple thing. Again, it's like breathing, listening. We we all listen, but do we really listen? Do we really hear each other? And I think there's something profound about truly being listened to. And Eckhart Tolle, who's written a lot on on presence, was someone who I've, I've had connection with because alternatives, we've put him on a number of times. And I've never failed to be impressed by the fact that when he's in a conversation with me, he is utterly present. And he's listening to every word, even if I'm not talking anything particularly profound. He is in a place of presence. And for me, that's a practice to listen, to be in a state of presence. So it's really important to listen and and actually be really present when you're listening. Yeah. In, in the way that you and I right now are listening to each other. So we are creating something together because we are taking cues from each other about the direction that this is taking. And in fact, what I did just then was I did a little bit of reflecting back on what you'd just said, you know, consciously to show people that actually just summarising an important point the other person has made helps them feel heard and actually helps you stay in the conversation rather than start thinking about how you're going to answer and respond to them. So actually telling yourself, particularly when you're panicky, actually just focus on what they're saying and reflect back something. You gain yourself time. They feel heard. And if they feel heard, they're more likely to listen to you. It's an incredibly simple thing, just like breathing. And this is why I love the two of them together. The breath stops you going off into automatic defense mode and the listening helps you stay and you actually hear what they're complaining about because sometimes it's not the same as what you imagine they're complaining about because you've added three or four other layers onto it and actually they're just upset about the fact you've left your shoes in the middle of the hallway not that you are a thoughtless and provocative person you know that's probably what you're bringing to it and if you can listen to them 
you cannot actually bring your own dragons into the whole thing. You know, it's enough to slay the dragon in the room without you bringing, you know, the, the distant relatives from the dragon into the room too. The sixth one is look for win-win solutions. So tell me about win-win solutions. We're often one of two ways. We are either sort of self-seeking, where we're going to look to win at all costs. We're looking at how we can make the, the dice roll in our favour, or we give away our power and we make sure the other person's not upset, which is what my mother did. You'll make sure the other person's not upset. And then in doing that, you will not look for your own needs in this. And for me, there's a, there's a profound place in the centre, which is going, what will work for both of us? What would be a good solution where we're both going to walk away from this feeling heard or seen? And, and there's, again, that's a practice. That's something that we can look at, that we're looking for the good of the whole. In the book, there are some lovely case studies that actually looks at the whole idea of slaying your dragons. So perhaps you could share one for us so we can sort of get an illustration of how it might work in, on the ground. Yeah, there's a, a lovely story that I often read. And I've used the real name of, of the woman in this story because she asked me to use her real name. And she was so pleased that what she did had something. This is around the ricochet effect and how often we will hear someone else's stuff and it will suddenly trigger us into something in ourselves that needs looking at, needs exploring. So this is a story about um, Susan. Starts with the, 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 with the initial ricochet. Actually, I won't read you the initial ricochet. So basically someone gets some, some work done in the, in the group and Susan then goes into tears. She's triggered by something. I'll read you from there on. After some time, a soft crying emerged from the other side of the circle. Susan, a gentle Irish woman, was sobbing. Raj basked in touch for a couple more minutes against the backdrop of Susan's sobs. When I sensed Raj felt content, I turned my attention towards Susan, who was being comforted by the person next to her. Would you like to share what's going on? I asked her. The words tumbled out of her. Five years ago, I met the love of my life in the gym. His name was Connor. I know this sounds really corny, but in that moment when our eyes met, we fell in love in a way I'd never experienced before. And that love continued for the whole five years I was with him. He was an Ironman triathlete, had two kids from a previous marriage, and I saw such a beautiful soul inside this powerful muscular body. He later told me that when he met me, he saw light shining from the top of my head. We were inseparable from that moment and moved in together a few months later. It was the purest love I've ever felt. This to me was a rarity, where falling in love seamlessly morphed into the art of loving. The group's attention was rapt. Three years later, Connor started getting pains in his stomach and went to his doctor, who assured him there was no serious problem and diagnosed acid reflux. This didn't feel right, and despite having a chest X-ray, which showed us it wasn't lung cancer, it took two years before his doctor x-rayed his stomach and found a massive cancer there. I was furious because it had been obvious that the problem was in his stomach, and it took so long for him to finally investigate it. Connor knew he was going to die, and he lost weight quickly. I'd go to bed praying, take me rather than him, for his children's sake, said Susan. From the October cancer diagnosis until the following April when he died, his body was in agony. Susan never flinched from being by his side, and she found that stroking his face was a joy for both of them. Every time she touched him, he would smile at her through his pain and say, I love you. 
For the last month of his life, he was in a hospice, which overlooked the sleeved Guion Mountains and the Keys Shopping Man, where Susan had watched Connor perform his first Iron Man triathlon. The nurses had put a fold-down bed next to Connor's so they could sleep facing each other at night. They spent time listening to songs and selecting which ones would be played at his funeral. One day he'd just chosen the sixth and final song, a Celtic football anthem, over and over, Celtic song. Connor was obviously a Celtic fan. And as they listened, she felt him dying. As he took his last breath, she slid her hand under his head and whispered in his ear, Connor, the windows are open. The mountains are outside. Fly out of your body and meet me on the other side. And we're both with her with tears, aren't we? (laughs) It's true. I've read this story so many times, and each time I tear up when I read it. Those words are so beautiful, and she actually gave me the actual words she said, but she really wanted her story to be told. And then what happened is that the, 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 the ricochet reverberated around the group, and one by one, four of us shared a story about the loss of a loved one. I shared Melissa's story with tears pouring down my face. The entire group was powerfully present a response to clarity and dignity of this grief. And the atmosphere in the room was calm, tender and electric. Susan turned to me at the end of the session. Thank you. I feel so much lighter. I never dreamed I'd be able to share this here. You created a space to heal my soul and it felt so safe to express my heart. We do need to have our dragons witnessed, don't we? Yes. I think there's something so profound about that, about seeing us what we grapple with in life and being able to to bear witness and stand with another as they go through what they're going through. And I use the words very carefully, witness, not rescue, because the temptation is to try and rescue and sort of say, I don't know what you would say because it would just be horrible. But there is a difference between witness and rescue. Help, help me out with this. Yeah, yeah well, actually, I think you've, you've hit the nail right on the head there, Andrew. And, and I think that, that what I look at often is that men, it's not always men, but it's, it's, it's both, but it's like a very masculine thing to try and fix things. So we want to help the other person not to feel their distress. So we want to fix it. But that's not actually what's needed. What's needed is the capacity and the ability to be with another's suffering and to stay present so that they know they're not alone rather than they're given a way to avoid their grief. So we're going to take a a quick break and then we're going to uh, look at some of the principles of slaying dragons once again in action because uh, somebody has very kindly shared a dilemma with us. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Guess how long I've been helping couples have more fulfilling relationships? The answer shocked me. 39 years. Over this time, I've developed all sorts of interventions to help couples communicate better and make meaningful changes to protect and nurture their love. Some ideas I've used for a while and dropped, but at the core, there are a handful of must-haves that I use with all the couples I see face-to-face. Sadly, 
I can't work with everyone who wants my help, but I can share my best relationship tools. I've put them in a new course with worksheets and links to my most helpful podcasts. There are four hours of instructions to do at your pace together, with your partner or on your own. And it normally retails at £150. But to launch, I've dropped them to a special introductory price of £99.50. If you'd like to find out more, go to andrewgmarshall.com forward slash tools and get started on improving your relationship. So if you'd like to become more involved with The Meaningful Life, if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com, you will find a way to sign up for my newsletter that's uh, carried on Substack, and uh, you will get regular bulletins about what I'm up to. Um, You'll get details of interesting articles. I've got one on projection, which is currently available, and I deal with lots of other subjects. So go to www.andrewgmarshall.com, join the Substack, and in the podcast section, you'll find out how to get involved with the program, either by becoming a uh, subscriber or sending in a letter to us. And this is one that I've been sent. My mother has always been a very capable woman and a proud one. She's coped with a lot of things, the death of my father, financial problems, and lots of smaller issues by holding her head high and plowing on. I've always loved and admired her, and we've had a good relationship. Now she's in her mid-80s and facing a multitude of health-related issues, and she needs help. But she won't admit it, and when I try to help, deliberately sabotages. I made her an appointment at the doctor's to try and get her to talk about how depressed she can get, but she told him her daughter was exaggerating. She is dangerously frail, but when I got her a cleaner, she sent her away. I try and be with her as much as possible, but we live several hours away from each other, and these days we seem to spend most of our time glaring at each other. Most annoying of all, she does not want to know what is wrong with her and refuses all tests offered by the doctor. Do I just sit and watch her deteriorate still further? What are my options? None of them seem good. They don't seem that wonderful, do they, Malcolm? So I think we need a shift of perspective here, so help us out. That's great. And as you read it, I'm sort of like fizzing with, with ideas around that. The first is that her mother is... A proud woman is what she said, and she's developed stoicism as a way of dealing with the difficulties of life. She's not going to abandon stoicism that easily, and she's certainly not going to be crowbarred out of being stoic. So the more that the daughter goes to the mother and says, come on, mum, I'm going to support you and help you, the more the mother steps away and says, I don't need it. Now, what the daughter can do in a situation like this is to be present with her mother so that she's actually taking her cues from her mother. And if she's not trying to push the river to go a particular direction, the river may start to flow. And if it doesn't, that's her mother's choice. She is choosing the manner of her latter years and of her impending dying. She's choosing that. Now, sometimes in those moments, there can be change. But if we're pushing for the change to happen out of its own rhythm, we are guaranteed pretty much to fail, especially with a woman who's strong and stoic as, as her mother is. And do you have a, an idea in the book, um, which is sort of quite a radical idea, 
and I feel a little bit embarrassed to say it, but I'm going to, because I'm going to slay that dragon, and that is befriend death. Now, that is a very radical idea. So explain to me befriending death, because I think that might be an, a concept that might be helpful here. It's, this is, we live in a death-denying society. That's the reality. Mm. Most of us have never seen a dead body or have, have seen it maybe at a funeral when, when, when it's in the funeral parlour. But we don't know about death very well, and we avoid death. We avoid talking about it. Uh, I was with my daughter recently, and she said, you've brought up death seven times during this evening. And <laughs> for me, it's not, oh, my God, you know, I mustn't talk about death. For me, there's something that it's part of life. I, as I reach, I'm in my 70s now, and as I, as I reach towards my latter years, I also reach towards what my dying might be like. Now, about a year and a half ago, I had a, a serious heart attack. I was on the phone to a, a Zoom call with a client. I felt a tight band across my chest. Finally, after ringing 111, I rang 999, and an ambulance came. Luckily, it was only an hour and a half, but it was still quite a long time to be sitting there in that. In, that. in the meantime, I was feeling more and more ill. And I got into the ambulance and the guy said, what do you think it is? I said, I think it's a heart attack. He said, I think you're right. And I sat in the ambulance and suddenly I felt like I might die. This might be the moment where I die. And at that moment, an immense peace came upon me. And I felt this real sense of, I've lived a rich life. I've written my legacy book. I, and my daughter always tells me off to say, this is a legacy book. She said, legacy is after you die. But actually, I feel like I've written down my philosophy and my practice in the, in this book, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And I've enhanced the lives of lots of people. If I'm to die, so be it. And the peace that came upon me was quite extraordinary. It didn't last that way. And I got to the hospital and they, they, they put a stent in. And um, I'm to all intents and purposes pretty well recovered actually from this. But the moment of dying wasn't terrible. And interestingly, I was so fascinated by your podcast with Catherine Mannix who said that actually an awful death is quite rare. And, and for me, there's something about the fact that it is part of living. It is part of the great adventure. Now, it, it happens that I come from a place where I believe that our soul is eternal. And, and I have listened to some great some masters educate me and others on this subject. And I do believe that with this, this veil of tears we live in as, as human beings, embodied as human beings, is temporal. So I think that helps, that death doesn't feel like the end for me. I can't imagine what it would be like if it felt like the end. But death feels like a great adventure that will beckon me, undoubtedly will beckon me sometime in the next 20, 30 years, if, if not sooner. And I don't want to spend my life being frightened of dying. I would rather really live the best I possibly can and accept that death is not the terrible curse that we believe it to be that it is something that will come upon every single last one of us at some point in time in this life. And I ran a death group for about 10 years uh, in London. And one of the women in the group died during the course of our group. I don't mean in the middle of a group, but she, she was a, a Buddhist and it was a very profound woman. And we went with her, we travelled with her through her dying process. And it was such a privilege to be with this woman who was bit by bit letting go of being alive, but not just shutting her eyes and shutting it out, but letting go of being alive and starting to feel what it was to be moving towards death. And she was an educator for us all. And what did you learn? I learned that there was beauty in death. 
that sounds so oxymoronic. But actually, there was a beauty about the way she died. And there was a beauty about the way she faced her dying. And I learned, and in fact, I learned something also when my father died, which I've written about in the book, that as he breathed his last breath, I had my hand on his heart as his heart stopped beating. And I didn't feel, oh, my God, my father's died. I felt, wow, that was so extraordinary to be there with this man, as this man who had brought me into this world, who I loved very much, and to feel that I was with him at his final moment. And I didn't feel like something terrible had happened. He'd lived a rich, full life, and he died in his 90s. So let's go back to the letter. And what are my options? I mean, one of your options is that you could continue to glare at each other, which doesn't seem to me like the best of <laughs> options. So <laughs> it's uh, I wonder what it would be like to listen to your mother in a sort of a curious way. You know, maybe the conversations you want to have are about the good old days. It might be there are questions that you want to ask that you haven't asked. I mean, I thought when my father was coming towards the end of his life that I'd asked every question. And I later discovered I hadn't, you know. So I went to an eye checkup and they were asking me about my family's eye health. And I didn't know all the answers because I'd never actually asked the ins and outs of stuff. I don't know what type of cancer my grandfather died of. I'd quite like to know that, but I never asked. And, you know, you always think there's another day to ask these questions. So I think to actually witness and be with her and ask curious questions about things that she's willing to talk about, because I think from the things that she's willing to talk about, you might be able to go into some of the, the more shadowy areas that she's not so keen to. But to go straight for the jugular, I don't think is going to, going to work. I think you used a magical word in there, Andrew, which was curious. If we can be curious about another, we can genuinely want to know what's going on for them, not as a way of manipulating them into having the conversation we want to have. Perhaps we will be surprised by what emerges in that. Now, I know my father didn't want to talk about dying, and, and we never spoke about dying, even when it was obvious that it was not very far away. Whereas my mother said, I have no fear of death, and I want to talk about it. And so my mother and I did have those conversations about dying. But I had to take a cue from them. I had to be curious about who they were. And my father and I, in his latter years, had some lovely conversations about you know, his golf days and his, his army days in, in, in the, as a GI in the American army. And I got such nourishment from that. But if I tried to manipulate him into talking about what it was like to be at this stage, I'd, be, I'd have been doing it for me, not for him. And it's quite clear from, from this, this lady who's obviously very caring as well and wants to support her mother, that perhaps there's a whole different angle to be taken, which is to learn to be the compassionate witness rather than the fixer. So here's a question for you. So what would your mother really like to talk about? And, you know, if it was her dancing days, let's talk about her dancing days, because um, that's, I, I mean, I'd like to hear about her dancing days, and I think you would too. So what does she really want to talk about? What, what does she really want? And if it's to be left alone as far as the practical things, but to actually have your presence, which I think is possibly very true, then give her that. 
that's a much better option than the two of you glaring each other, which doesn't sound particularly nice. I think one of the things that I often say in a situation like that is put your marker down. So she, she might, she might say, you might say to your mother that I'm always going to be available for you. And if you need any support of a practical nature or in any other way, I'm here for you, but I'm not going to push it at you. But I invite you, if ever you want to, to speak to me and to ask me. So I hope that was helpful. And unfortunately, we're beginning to run out of time. So I have to ask Malcolm, what makes your life meaningful? I am so happy to have been given a talent that I use in my life, that my, that my life's work is effectively the main part of my life's work is, is running groups where I see the underbellies of people and where I have the capacity to move things on. And in that, in, in that service, and I, I, I'm reminded of a quote by Rabindranath Tagore, the great Indian mystic, who said, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and found that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. For me, what makes my life meaningful is that I am, feel like I am in service to the evolution of humanity. That might sound very highfalutin, but I'm playing my own tiny part in that process. And I want to tie it back into the quote, and you're actually in the service of joy, ultimately. Yes. And I get great joy from delivering who I am. So I think if I'd retired at 70 and just gone, well, I'm going to play golf like my dad did, or um, I'm just going to potter around the shops, I wouldn't feel that same life flow coming through me that actually makes me go, yes, this is another day that there's some interesting things that are going on where I can contribute. And I always thank God for the times when therapists who are old don't retire, because if you're an old therapist like I am, you sort of need somewhere to go and talk about your problems. And you sort of want an older therapist to talk to. And unfortunately, a lot of therapists retire, and the ones that don't are particularly precious. So thank you, Malcolm, for bringing your wisdom to, to the book um, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you're a supporter, we're going to be looking at what keeps dragons powerful, which is the spells, which Malcolm defines as the words, deeds and judgments that go unquestioned, undigested and unchallenged. But not in our bonus material. We're going to be challenging those words, deeds and judgments and be talking about breaking the spell. If you'd like to join us for that, well, it's very simple. You can join us for the bonus material by subscribing directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of Meaningful Life, here come all the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.